0: and we trust the Lord will bless it, and our meditation upon his word. Thinking about the subject of worshipping God, here's a Mark Twain quote to begin with, and Mark Twain wasn't a Christian, but he's got some interesting quotes, and he said this, The two most important days in your life are the day you were born, and the day you find out why. And if you take that quote and you apply it to the spiritual realm, it's no different. That spiritually, then the two most important days, I think, of your spiritual experience would be this, the day you were born again, and also the day that you understood why. Why is it that God saved us? To what purpose? And how should I live my life in light of that? And that's why I read in verse 5 and in verse number 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2, because Peter is speaking about those very things. Now, it's not comprehensively speaking in answer to that issue. There are more purposes for which God has saved us, but he focuses in on these two statements which relate to our subject this evening. And he says in verse number five that we have been made living stones, we have built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, And here's the purpose clause, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And then you go down to verse number 9, and there's a second purpose clause in that verse. And again, there's a list of what God has done and what God has made us at salvation. And he says, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Here's the purpose clause, that ye should show forth the praises of Of him, and then he, him, is described thereafter, who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Now, when you take these two statements together, it may well be that you arrive at the conclusion that one is speaking about worship and the other is speaking about witness. And superficially, on the surface, that would appear to be certainly the emphasis. But when you think about it perhaps a bit more, you discover this, that these are not actually exclusive. And so you discover that witness and worship tend to overlap to a great degree in the Bible. Let me try and give you an example of that sort of thing. In Acts chapter 16, you remember that the Philippian jailer stories in Acts chapter 16... And in that experience in verse number 25 of Acts 16 it says this, that at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to God and you would say well there's the worship. But in their worship they were witnessing, because it says this, and the prisoners heard them. And there was evidently an impact of their worship in witness. And also, conversely, our witness functions as, wor- as worship. And it is acceptable, it is pleasing to God, it, it honours the Lord, it exalts the Lord. And so there's a big overlap between the two. And that, by the way, is also, you often get sermons where they start in the same letter and you get witness and you get worship and you get work. And work is also overlapping our witness And our worship, that's another subject. So when you go to work, there is witness. When you go to work, there is worship. It's not that you stop your work and you go on your knees and you pray and that's your worship. But your actual work functions as worship. And your actual work functions as witness. As you witness in demonstrating Christ-likeness, God-honouring, working. That is worship and witness as well. So these things overlap. But when we come to verse number um, 9 in particular, let's focus on that for a moment or two. When he says this, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness. Now we're speaking with the subject of worship. And here let's dig into this little expression, to show forth the praises of him. Here, as we've pointed out, is a purpose clause. That is, here is the purpose for which the rest of the verse is true. Where it says, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. This is what God has done. This is what we are. This is the blessings that we have been been bestowed upon us. All of these things are true of us. And he says this, God has done these things and God has made us these things for a purpose. And the purpose in this context is that we would show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. So what does that expression, show forth, mean? Now if you're familiar with the New Testament, and particularly if you're in a local church Fellowship and part of that local church fellowship is the breaking of bread and remembrance of the Lord Jesus on a weekly basis, then some of that language will be familiar to you. It's actually the same word that's employed in First Corinthians, chapter 11, speaking about the breaking of bread. But show forth means a proclamation, a complete comprehensive proclamation to show forth. One dictionary definition in my notes says this, To tell something not otherwise known and to make it widely known. To show forth. The root word actually is the same root word from which we get the word angels. Messengers whose job it was to proclaim and make known. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 26, the word appears in that text. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show, that's the idea of proclaiming, showing forth the Lord's death till he come. So this is a demonstration that, of course, when we think about this idea of showing forth, it's not limited to a proclamation to unbelievers. It's not limited to that. Now, it is that, but it's not limited to it. Can I suggest to you, it's not even limited to a proclamation to other people, believer or unbeliever. It is actually a proclamation that takes God and other people, believer or unbeliever, and includes all. It is a proclamation so that when you gather to remember the Lord Jesus, and it may well be that there are no other people present in your room, in your building. You say, well, what's the point of breaking bread? Well, we're remembering the Lord, but is it the case that I can actually fulfil this part of the instruction Even though there isn't an unbeliever present, yes you can. You're making a proclamation, you're making a comprehensive declaration of the Lord's death. And it's observed from heaven. And we do that till he come. Now in the Old Testament, worship was very much expressed in this kind of language. Let me give you a couple of, uh, three quotations from the Old Testament to demonstrate that. Psalm 9 verse 14 says this, That I may tell of all thy praises, and that's the same Hebrew word, it's the equivalent, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in thy salvation. Psalm 107 verse 22 is the same. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgivings and tell, there's the word, of his works with joyful singing. Proclaim. Isaiah 43 verse 21 This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Well, if that is the expression, show forth, then what about this expression, the praises? If we have been saved to comprehensively proclaim, not only to the unbeliever, but to each other and before God, and if we have to proclaim the praises, what does that expression mean? Now, there is a, a word sometimes that you hear, doxology. And it comes from a Greek word, doxa, which is the normal word for praise, and so a doxology is a kind of hymn of praise. But this is not that word. This is actually an unusual word. In fact, it's a relatively rare word. It's translated praises only once in our New Testament. The other times it's translated virtues or excellences. So we have been said, build it up in your mind, We have been made all of the things stated by Peter, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and the purpose of which is to comprehensively declare and proclaim the virtues or the excellencies of our God, the one who has called us from darkness into light. What is this idea of excellence? It's in plural, so it's more than one. It is the, the many virtues of our God. The many excellencies of our God. Well, again, bear with me. That word virtue, excellencies, that little unique word... Uh, one of the concordances um, or dictionaries that I read says this, it's never, it never meant hidden virtue or virtue of attitude, but always virtue which is demonstrated in action or word. So the virtues, the excellencies of God, that is his intrinsic glory, his intrinsic value manifested in the things that he has done and said. And so when we come to worship our God, what are we going to be speaking about? What are we going to be demonstrating? We're actually going to be de- demonstrating the glories, the excellencies, the virtues that we can hear or see of God as expressed in the Bible. God's actions, God's words, which demonstrate God's character. So when we praise him, we focus in on what scripture says about him we focus in on what scripture says that he has done the person that he is his excellencies let me try and illustrate that word excellence from two other ideas for example it would be correctly used in this way land or anything in nature that fulfills its proper function that is referred to as excellent or virtuous so for example land that produces crops would be described as excellent land because it is fulfilling its purpose and it's producing what it should. Um, uh, An implement, a tool, of which I have virtually none, that works correctly is an excellent tool. That's the proper use of the word. Because it's doing what it's supposed to do. Now, when we come to God, this is why we can praise him. This is why there are so many excellencies that we can focus in on because God's character is demonstrated in his actions and his words and he always acts consistently with his character. He's always doing what he ought to do. He's always saying what he ought to say. You never catch him out. And we praise him. And we worship him with absolute confidence. Confidence. His virtues well if you're with me here's another thing how can we know God's excellences and virtues and you might be thinking well here's the bit where he's going to tell us to read our Bible and to read our Bible again and to get into a study relationship with someone else and so forth well not quite Scripture tells us that it is not easy to know this because Ecclesiastes 7 verse 24 says that which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? So there's an acknowledgement that this is not a simplistic thing. In fact, Psalm 145 verse 3 tells us that God's greatness is unsearchable. Well, that's not a real good start if you're actually going to investigate and discover. And it's already telling you that his greatness is inexhaustible, it's unsearchable. That also in Romans 11 and verse 33 we're told that his judgments are unsearchable. In Ephesians 3 verse 8 we're told that his riches are unsearchable. But yet the wonder of it is just this. That the God whose authority, whose power, whose greatness, his judgment, whose riches is Unsearchable, it's inexhaustible, it's still the God that can be known and therefore worship and praised, and his excellencies be known. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29, when you're taking notes, as he says this the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever. God has revealed truth about himself in his work. And that is what we can know. It's not inexhaustible because his greatness is unsearchable, his judgments are unsearchable, his riches are unsearchable. You'll never get to an end of that process. You'll never be finished. You'll never exhaust the search or the study of God. But nonetheless, he can be known so we come to the subject of worship to show forth his praises his excellences what a subject to be taken up with the virtues of our god now if you are going to investigate this in some detail it may well be that you will go online or whatever i don't know if you've actually get hard copy books anymore but you go online and you begin to search for this and for example, you might find um, a book called The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, and you start reading that, and you're like, whew, that's going to take me a long time to, to kind of get through that. And then you think, well, I need to read the Puritans. Well, uh, it's not really a good thing to say good luck to you in that from the platform, but you know, you may need it uh, if you decide to read all of what the Puritans wrote, and uh, even the language sometimes is difficult to understand, never mind the truth or convey. There is... So much material out there, good material to read, where the attributes of God are researched and are spoken of and written of. It's tremendous. And when we think about the attributes and the virtues and the excellencies of God, I really must recommend that you do begin to dig into it. Don't be put off by some of the heavy works uh, and scholarly works that are out there. Find Literature that is readable, that is an introductory basis to this, and begin to dig into this. Begin to, and I'll think about this maybe a bit tomorrow when we we'll think about rejoicing. Um, I should have said, Do you know the difference between exalt and exalt, and maybe even extol? And uh, we're going to discover the difference between these little words. But you know, the idea is just this that there is a, there is a subject that draws you in when you begin to investigate. I mean, have you ever heard of the Asaity of God? You know, until fairly recently, I had never heard of the aseity of God. And then I saw it in an article and I began, what's the aseity of God? I began to look into it. And a whole big subject opened up to me about the character of God. And you think about the independence of God and the authority. And there's so many attributes of God displayed in Scripture that are just there for us to investigate and know. And it enriches our worship. It really does. When you're able to ponder and meditate, and express an appreciation of God, who He is. It's inexhaustible. This is worship. You know, in English, the word worship really is directly related to the word worthy. Um, one derivation of the word worship is this: worthship, when you ascribe worth to someone. This is worship it uh, used to be long before I got married it used to be in marriage vows that you'd actually to say with my body I thee worship and that sounds quite strange nowadays I have to say but that's the correct word usage of the word worship it is giving honour and place and reverence in your heart to someone or something that is expressed in your body, in your mind, your thoughts by your whole being But essentially, these are acts of worship. Worship itself is sourced within your heart. And it's a heart attitude to God in the context of the Bible. And the more you learn about the attributes of God, the more your heart is stirred, and the more you desire to reverence and to honour and to uplift the Lord, whether it's in the way you work, whether it's in the way you witness, whether it's in the way you eh, worship audibly or verbally, in whatever way you express it and so digging in to the attributes of God is so very important this idea of worship is right throughout scripture you know in the Old Testament it's a common word I noted this 71 times the word is used that means to bow down in reverence, that's the key idea to esteem, to honour to revere, in the New Testament the same type of word is used 26 times 21 times in Revelation and by the way only once in the epistles which is interesting 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25, it's actually used of the impact of God on display in the activity of a New Testament assembly. And it says this Thus are the secrets of the heart made manifest. Falling down in his face, he will worship God and report that God is in. You have a truth? Worship. Now, if you don't know much about worship, go to John chapter 4. And there you have an exposition of worship by the Lord Himself, who teaches that woman by the well what true worship is. And I'm not going to go into that section in much detail just now, but that's the section in the New Testament, that's the key section on worship in our New Testament. And the Lord Jesus is what's he doing? He's witnessing. What's he witnessing about? Worship. Two things are just intertwined. And he begins a conversation with this woman. You read it in John chapter 4. And it becomes a, a conversation about religion. And the Lord Jesus changes it to worship. And she's fixating on places and in history and all the rest of it. And he takes her away from that. And he's going to teach her that worship is not about a ritual. It's not about a system. It's not about a place. It didn't matter which mountain that she was referring to. Worship's got nothing to do with location in that sense. It's also not to do in our New Testament context with holy days, with seasons, with feasts, with festivals, with rituals, all of that sort of thing speak what the Lord Jesus speaks about. He says, true worship is worship in spirit and in truth. Now that was astounding to her. This was new revelation to this woman. It's remarkable. And perhaps we in our New Testament context ought to refer back to that teaching on worship and remind ourselves that we should not get caught up as a matter of importance with the place and with the ritual that we may have superimposed into scripture or whatever. We need to understand this, that worship essentially must be characterized by these two things in spirit and in truth. And so worship is reverencing God. Worship is adoring God. Worship is elevating God, appreciating him for who he is. Worship is all of that. Worship is singing, but it's more than singing. Worship is praying, but it's more than praying. In fact, Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, says this, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's saying, look at your life, every aspect of it. The rhythm of your life, the pattern of your life, the minutiae of your life, the way that you um, think about things, the priorities you place in your life. He even says here, listen, even the food that you eat, all of it, he says, see it in this way that you're doing it And you're doing it with a heart for God, and you're honouring God, and you're glorifying God in every aspect of your being. Now there's a real practical import to that that we'll come to in due course. Think about Mary, another example in John chapter 12. You remember Mary and her worship the alabaster box of ointment that she broke and so forth, if you don't know that story then you must read that story it's a wonderful story to read and it's a tremendous example of worship and here is this woman and she is willing to put herself down in order that Christ be exalted she will humble herself to exalt and glorify him this is worship and she will take which is that which is so precious to her that box of ointment that, nah, that, that precious thing and she will she will not use it, for example, to anoint the body of her brother who died in the previous chapter because there is someone who is more precious to her than even her brother, Lazarus. And so she reserves it for he who is first place. He who is revered. He who is honoured in her life. Can I say this? He who was worshipped by her in her heart. And she looks for the opportunity and she gets the opportunity in John chapter 12. And she will worship and she will do it by breaking that box and by anointing the Lord. And putting that fragrance upon his body. I can always remember my dad speaking on that. It's one of his favourite uh, kind of subjects he would speak on, and he remember him telling us all about the effect of that ointment on the body that would last for I think it was maybe seven or ten days, and he would tell us that the Lord appreciated that worship in the moment, but it lingered with him. And He appreciated it the next day, and then he appreciated it the day after. And then the day came when they stripped everything off him and the only thing that he took with him to the cross was the fragrance of her worship. It was still on him. So valuable, so precious. And she brings herself so low, she takes her hair, that which God had given to her for her glory. And she will use that hair to wipe and she just there's a humiliation to the thing there's a lowliness to the whole thing and the objections come in of course the objection from Martha was that there was no time for this there were legitimate other things that should take priority over this and then you had, the, of course, the objection from Judas, which was this is a waste of money. And so, you know, superficially, he's saying, look, far better to give it to charity. And the Lord is teaching here that worshipping Him is more important than giving to charity, worshipping Him is more important than even the daily tasks of life and elsewhere it's obvious that the daily tasks of life are important it's obvious that giving to the poor was such an intrinsic part of what he did but he's he's saying look these things were good it's not that they were bad but these things were not at the same level as to what she was doing as she sat at the feet of the saviour and she worshipped him let us not slip into the Martha mindset and let us not slip into the Judas mindset either and let us understand this that as a Christian, as a young Christian and as an older Christian that the purpose for which we have been saved according to Peter is that we might show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvellous life we need to be a worshipping people so here's the bit here's a bit of challenge for you Do you worship God? In your heart, do you adore him? In your heart, do you exalt him? Does he have that place in your heart that's expressed in acts of worship, or words of worship, or hymns of worship, or deeds of worship? But these things are expressions of the, the worship that's coming in spirit and in truth. Or is the well dry? So that when you gather, it's an obvious illustration, as a sister in an assembly gathering like this, and yes, the the brethren are are audibly leading the the saints in worship, but that doesn't mean you're mute, because inaudibly you also are worshipping, and should be worshipping equally with anyone else in the room. But is the well dry? Is there nothing there? No thoughts of God. No thoughts of Christ. No hymn that comes into your mind that just sums up what you feel in your heart. No scripture that you've pondered and thought about through the week. The well's dry. And as men stand up and Everyone in the room knows that the well is dry, just by the way we're participating. Same old, same old. What a challenge for us. Well, we come to our word education, just at the end here. Um, And the reason I want to just focus on these things is that in order for us to worship, we need to learn. There needs to be education. I don't mean going to school or college. There needs to be a learning process in order for us to be continually worshipping, or the well runs dry. When you think about Mary, and that's why I read in Luke chapter 1, Mary says, This, my soul doth magnify the Lord. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. Now these really are the two sessions tomorrow. Exaltation and exaltation. In reverse order. Doth magnify exaltation. Hath rejoiced exaltation. Jonathan Edwards an American um, Puritan wrote this. In order for there to be heat in the heart there needs to be light in the mind. I like that. If our hearts are going to be filled with joy in relation to our God, there needs to be a light in the mind. We need to learn so that we can worship. For this reason, if you don't know who God is, if you don't know the attributes, and I don't mean comprehensively because we've seen that's impossible anyway, but if you're not digging into these things, and you're not investigating the words and the works of God and the, the character of God displayed in those things. Let me just illustrate, when you think about the power of God, the eternality of God, you know, you go to the creation story and you hear the words of God express it and you see the works of God express it and through his works and words you're learning about the character of God as the great eternal creator but if we don't know who God is and what he has done we will end up worshipping a God of our own imagination and it may be according to spirit but not truth there may be enthusiasm but we may be misplaced and worshipping a God who is not the God of the Bible one writer said this if we hope to worship passionately we must first think precisely about who God is and what he's done for us now there is a balance in this, don't get me wrong it doesn't mean we've all to become scholarly and dry and, uh, and you know um, academic, it doesn't mean that at all it doesn't mean that you've got to have a certain academic ability to. that's what I was trying to say, to read these big works that Godly men of old have written and so on it, and therefore if you can't do that you're excluded from it. not at all, absolutely not at all there is a balance to this because the Lord said this to these Pharisees of old you hypocrites well did Isaiah prophesy of you and he said this people honour me with their lips but their heart is far from me in vain do they worship me teaching his doctrines the commandments of men and basically the Lord is saying this you can say all the right things and you can know all the right things and still not be worshipping there needs to be spirit and truth the balance we can align our thoughts with what the Bible teaches. But then so too could the Pharisees. Yet there was no fear, no awe, no reverence of God and of the Messiah, even though they knew the scriptures inside out. No joy. One might to put it this way, God is not honoured by heartless orthodoxy, nor is he honoured by joyful heresy. It isn't enough to think correctly or to feel passionately. To worship God truly, we must have both our heads aligned with truth and our hearts on fire with love and inexpressible joy and glory. You see the balance of the two? And so worshippers must be learners. We must have a learning approach to our God. Now, some of you didn't pass the driving test first time. I'm not looking at anyone, but I'm just saying, some of you didn't. Some of us did, is that right, Graham? Some of us did pass the driving test first time. So, the L plates were only up briefly. But, you know, when you think about spiritual experience, the L plates are up constantly. They're never down. We're always all learning, and should be. doesn't matter... How mature a Christian is, he's still or she is still a learner. Tozer, A. W. Tozer began his classic, The Knowledge of the Holy, with this sentence, and it's a famous sentence What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Defines our whole life. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Psalm 115 verse 8 says this about idols. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusts in them. You become like the object of your worship. That's a principle within the human breast. So if you're an idolater, you become like your idol. You worship money, you become like it. You, whatever. You worship God, you become like God. It's a basic principle within human experience so we need to learn we need to know and so many scriptures let me just give you a few of them emphasize the importance of this you know remember the apostle paul who'd been a believer for probably about 25 years and no shrinking violet he was the apostle you know he was he was the one through whom god wrote most of the new testament And yet in Philippians 3 and verse 10, what does he say? What's his passion? That I may know him. That I may know him. this is Paul speaking. That I may know him. Hosea wrote in chapter 6 and verse 3 of his prophecy, Let us press on to know the Lord. Peter, again, chapter 3, verse 18. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour. Listen to Psalm 100. We'll think of this tomorrow. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. And so he goes on. Listen to Jeremiah 9 and verse 23. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom or the mighty man in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories Glory in this, that he understands and knows me. God is saying, if you go going to glory or boast in anything in this world, here is what you need to boast in. Here is where your focus needs to be, that you know and understand God. It's the biggest thing for us. I've read this to the folks back home in our Bible class. I'm going to read it here. On the 7th of January, 1855, C.H. Spurgeon preached a sermon at the New Park Street Chapel in Southwark, Southwark. And he said this. The scripture was Malachi 3, verse 6. I am the Lord, I change not. I think he preached for about three hours on it. I am the Lord, I change not. This is an excerpt someone commenting on this and remember this he was 20 years old when he wrote this and preached this sermon he was 20 this is what he said 20 there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of God it is a subject so vast That all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. I don't even think I knew that word existed when I was 20. Immensity. So deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, this is incredible, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of God. Then he challenges us. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in its immensity. You shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout music and musing upon the subject of the Godhead. He's 20 years old. What did Moses say when the Lord spoke to him face to face as a man would speak to his friend? Well, I think that probably up to this point, you and I would have had enough experience with God if were Moses to last a lifetime. Moses had said, Stood before the burning bush. You know, in the great world of new Christian evangelicalism, that's enough for a full career. He stood before a burning bush that burned and was not consumed. He'd walked through the Red Sea and taken a nation with him, dry shod. He had been up Mount Sinai and he'd handled the stones, the tablets of stone which the finger of God had written. And now God is speaking to him in the aftermath of the golden calf incident. And you say, Moses, surely that's enough. You know what he says? Exodus 33. This is what he says to God. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee. That I may find grace in thy sight. And he goes on he says this I beseech thee, show me thy glory. You say, Moses, you were up Mount Zion. Did you not see it? You say, Moses, you walked through the Red Sea. Did you not see it? He stood before a bush that burned and was not consumed. Did you not see it? And he said, "I want more. I want to see and to know God. Show me Thy glory." It was the beating heart of Moses. It was his deepest desire. We had the great privilege and pleasure of Ian Jackson's company. Some of you were there at a conference, and then he stayed for a week in ministry he spoke from 1 Peter and I'll leave you with something that Ian left with us now you would not have heard it unless you were at Bridge of Weir uh, on the Sunday morning because it was just a little message he gave to the assembly of Bridge of Weir after the breaking of bread and it hasn't left my mind since he read Exodus chapter 12 the verses I'm going to read to you about the Passover lamb, and the instruction to Moses about how it would be that the children of Israel would be redeemed out of slavery and preserved from the destroying angel that would come in and able to exit Egypt and go out triumphantly. To Passover lamb. And it says that every household had to choose out a lamb. And then it says this and they shall take of the blood. And strike it on the two-side posts and the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. They shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. This is it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire. His head with his legs. A.V. says pertinence, and Ian saying that word sounded quite good, pertinence, but it just means the innards. His head with his legs and the innards you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. That which remains until the morning, you'll burn with fire, and thus you shall eat it. With your loins girded, your shoes and your feet and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord Passover. Imagine this, this is how Ian put it, and I thought it was fantastic. He said just this, it is one of the only two occasions where sacrificially the animal was actually not separated out and divided up, but was Put back together as a whole, and he said this, a whole lamb on the table. It's the Passover. A whole lamb on the table. Every aspect of it on the table. And it all had to be eaten. None it to be left. And they would be sustained by feasting upon that which spoke about Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, Christ our Passover is sacrificed with us and they would feast on every aspect of that which spoke of Christ and it would sustain them for the journey as they would leave. A full lamb on the table. Just allow your mind to run with that. The head, the innards, the legs, all speaking of Christ in different ways. But then he took us to Leviticus chapter 1, the burnt offering a whole bullock on the altar. The burnt offering being the only offering, apart from the skin where the rest, of, the whole of it went in the altar for God. A whole lamb in the table, a whole bullock on the altar. And there it's a sacrifice that speaks of Christ, appreciated by God in worship. Feasting upon Christ in the totality of his being, offering that which spoke about Christ in the totality of his being, and the one leads to the other. You see the picture? If I feed upon Christ, then I will be able sacrificially to offer Christ and worship back to God. If I investigate all that's spoken of there in the full lamb, then I will be in a position to have a a rounded, comprehensive, not exhaustive, but but a, a really good understanding of Christ that I can offer in worship. A full lamb on the table, a full bullock on the altar. Education. It used to be the politicians would win elections by saying it's all about education, education, education now, I don't say that so much now, that's a bit of a loser but education is not that type of education, here is something that is going to have to be true of you and me not just now, but now and tomorrow and the day after and continually, we need to continue if we're going to worship to learn to learn so here's the challenge just a singular challenge as I pray Are you going to start, if not already started, to learn about your God? To learn about your Saviour? We learn about all sorts of things. Let us learn about our God so that we can worship. Let's just pray. God, our Father, we give thanks again for the opportunity of looking into Scripture to confess.